All right, welcome to day 92 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Numbers 33 and 34, as well as Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31, and Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 27. Okay, um, Numbers 33 is um, the itinerary of wilderness wanderings, the wilderness itinerary, which is basically like a recounting of presumably all of the stops that the Israelites made during their 40-year journey through the wilderness. Of course, it doesn't take 40 years to get from Egypt to the land of Canaan, but as you recall, um, their failure to trust in the Lord following the return of the spies and the spies' um, negative evaluation of the land, their fearful evaluation of the land and their lack of trust in the Lord to give it to them, um, all of that resulted in uh, the Lord declaring that that the, that generation, that entire generation who had come out of Egypt, um, would die in the wilderness, and that He would give it to their children, the next generation, who is now, who is now um, the, the the focus of the the narrative. Um, we have here the note that uh, Moses wrote this down. Uh, so in verse 2, he wrote down their starting places stage by stage by the command of Yahweh. So Yahweh commanded him, and Moses has been keeping tabs of everywhere that they've gone. Uh, note here also that there are a lot more sites noted than uh, we have heard of so far. So the the elements of the journey that we've read about are only partial, right? It's obviously, this isn't a whole 40 years worth of stuff that's happened to them that we've read about. Um, so there's there's a lot more that happened, and this is a selective thing. Out of 40 years, these are all the things that um, that uh, the, the narrator has chosen to tell us about. Um, we also have in chapter 33, starting in verse 50, the command once again to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. And the language here, as I've noted before, is something that we need do need to take into account when considering the difficult questions about the morality surrounding the, the conquest of Canaan that we will read about in Joshua. That's not to say that a war didn't happen and everything that happened is totally compatible with our mo- modern moral sensibilities, um, indeed, we might say our Christian-informed um, moral sensibilities. But we should keep in mind that part of the mandate is to drive the people out of this land, um, which does not, um, uh, which does not sound like go in and just slaughter everybody. I think a balanced analysis of what is going on here suggests that both things did happen. Uh, that there was a driving out, there was a displacement of the population, and uh, that the Israelites, the people that they actually end up doing battle against, are those who remain. Uh, those so there there is a an option that the people are given who live in the land. Um, their uh, their fate is not sealed, and their decision to to remain there and to oppose the Israelites. Uh, to oppose the Lord effectively uh, is something that has to be factored in. Uh, they are to so they're to drive out the people, according to this passage. They're to destroy their figured stones, their metal images, both of which uh, would be um, would be um, 
physical idols, uh, images of deities and things like that, as well as their high places. And the high places will become um, an important aspect, especially we'll see this when we get to the books of Kings. Uh, but as I've noted before, the high places were is 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 a is a way of referring to these cultic shrines that were atop hills throughout the land of Canaan, used to worship various deities. Um, and sometimes, no doubt, the Israelites would even have used them to worship the Lord in um, what we might classify as deviant Yahweh worship, that is, worship of the Lord that is that is unauthorized, uh, worshiping the Lord, but in a way in which he has not prescribed. Um, so the high places when the Israelites come into the land um, do... Um, are reused. Uh, the, the Israelites struggle with idolatry throughout their whole um, existence, and um, most often it seems they are to worship. For, they are used to worship foreign deities, but they are sometimes used to worship the Lord as well. Um, and if not, if they don't do this, then the concern is that, uh, as uh, verse fifty-five puts it, those who remain will be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they shall trouble you in the land in which you dwell. And this would come in a variety of different forms. Okay, so it does become in, in forms of like physical uh, and antagonism and um, um, even oppression and things like that. Um, but also, of course, the leading the Israelites astray after foreign Canaanite deities. And as a result, this ha- having happened, uh, the Lord says, I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Uh, which does suggest that what is meant by the barbs and thorns is not so much um, Israelite being oppressed or Israelite being attacked, but rather Israel Israel being led astray. Right? That they would as the, that this would result in something that is worthy of of God's judgment. Um, it's an interesting verse, verse fifty six, right? And, and it does speak to the uh, false impression that sometimes people get in reading the Old Testament that the Old Testament is. Uh, Almost a almost a racist book, right? That that it favors this one people group to the exclusion of all the others, and that simply because you're Israel, God loves you more. No, that Israel is subjected to the same kind of standards that everybody else is. They are held to the same account that everybody else is. Um, they are God's chosen people. That is that is a biblical way to look at it. Uh, but it isn't as if they could just claim that and everything would be fine. No. Should they turn away from the Lord, then they are essentially no different than everybody else. Okay, and then in chapter 34, you have a rough division of the land uh, for the tribes. Um, uh, keep in mind, the uh, Reuben and Gad and East Manasseh have been apportioned their area to the east of the Jordan River. And uh, now you have the other um, the other tribes, their allotments. So it would be Simeon, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Ephraim, um, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, West Manasseh, and Benjamin. So these are the those are the ones who remain for tribal their uh, to receive their tribal allotment. And Levi, uh, of course, uh, the Levites would would dwell amongst the other tribes, and that would be how it how it would work. Um, and as well as we're given the, the heads of the tribes, the, the men who will uh, participate in the actual apportioning off of the land. Okay, that's it for numbers today. Let's go ahead and take a look at Proverbs chapter 8. 
Again, we have another one of these short passages here. Um, uh, some interesting stuff in today's Proverbs, verses 28 through 31. So here again, we have wisdom personified speaking and talking about um, her virtues. And here, uh, the focus is going to be on the fact that wisdom is so uh, foundational to God's creation that it was basically always here. It was always with the Lord. And with the very first creative acts that God has done, wisdom has been here. So it's just, it's that permanent, it's that foundational, it's that um, woven into what God has done that when you pursue wisdom, you're in essence um, uh, understanding the very fabric of God's creation. Um, so Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his work. Um, I suppose I should mention here that there is a bit of a translational question here. That word possessed could also mean Yahweh created me at the beginning of his work. Um, I don't think there's a huge big difference here. Like, is are we to envision like Yahweh um, wielding wisdom as to how he would create or, or something like that? Um or, or or having wisdom and then endowing creation with it? Or are we to envision Yahweh essentially creating the principles of wisdom, almost like he would create the laws of physics, like that, that kind of thing? Uh, either way could work. I don't think there's a strong way to determine one way or the other. You see the same um, issue with this word elsewhere. Um, you might recall in Genesis 14, when Melchizedek comes up, uh, comes out, uh, the, he he refers to the God whom he worships as El Elyon, uh, creator of heaven and earth. It could also mean possessor of heaven and earth. So the verb kana in Hebrew could go either way. And I, I'm not sure that there's uh, a, a, an awesome, strong argument in favor of one translation or another. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's essentially the issue here. Um, I think also uh, notice um, the free use of very figurative language, what appears to be very figurative language in the way in which creation is described. And here we have an interesting thing, right? Because when you think about the biblical account of creation, you typically think of Genesis 1 and 2. Well, there are other creation accounts, things that speak of God creating um, the world and all that is in it uh, elsewhere throughout the Bible, and Proverbs 8 is one of these things. So <clears throat> the the there were no... Um, there, there was a time when there were no depths, there were no springs abounding with water, uh, no mountains had been shaped, no hills, um, the earth with its field had not even been made. Uh, the first dust of the world is not there. And then it talks about the establishment of the heavens, talks about him drawing a circle on the face of the deep, making firm the skies above establishing the fountains of the deep, assigning to the sea its limit so that waters might not transgress his command. Note here also that a lot of these concepts do ring very similar to what we find in Genesis, which I think is interesting. Uh, anytime you see a biblical writer clearly aware of another piece of biblical literature, I think that um, that is an important thing to note. Um, because there's always questions about things like the dating of various biblical texts and stuff. And I think we can say that when you say when when it says things like assigning the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress uh, his commands, um, 
making firm the skies above, things like that. It sounds like the writer of Proverbs is aware of uh, some of the things that happen in those first two chapters of Genesis, particularly Genesis 1. Um, uh, granted, there is stuff here that's not in there, like the establishment of the foundations of the earth and things like that. Um, now, there, there's, there's also here an, another interesting thing is that uh, there are questions about uh, whether or not the Bible reflects uh, a very primitive understanding of uh, the um, the co- the cosmology, uh, the world, and what it's made up of, and how it's composed. Um, so, uh, and and some of that depends on how literally we think these things are supposed to be taken. Of course, we reading them do not take them literally. But the question is, did the Israelites? And um, honestly, people kind of go back and forth on this. Different scholars go back and forth on this. Like, like, did they really think that the sky was firm above, or uh, is this merely what they would call phenomenological? That is language that just very, I suppose, literally you could say, describes things as it appears. And there's an understanding that that's kind of like not to be taken woodenly, literally. So all those things are in play here. Um, but the idea again is that wisdom is there as, as it says in verse 30, I was beside him like a master workman. Um, uh, and I was daily his delight rejoicing before him always rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. So wisdom fully on board with what God is doing. Um, yeah. So Interesting stuff here in Proverbs today. Let's go over to Luke now, chapter 9, verse 10, and um, and see what we have there. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 10, Jesus is now coming to the town of uh, Bethsaida. And when the crowds hear this, they follow him. And um, and um, and uh, he's well, he welcomes them. He speaks to them of the kingdom of God cures those who are in need of healing. Notice in Jesus' ministry, these things go hand in hand with the healing, kind of like this palpable um, uh, declaration that the that, that the kingdom is dawning. Um, you, could, you could kind of think of it as like a- almost akin to, um, let's say, a, a king begins to reign and to celebrate his reign or to make it known like what kind of king he's going to be. Maybe he he gives something out to all the people. Maybe he gives them food or something like that. You know, this this idea like here's something tangible to show you like what this is going to be like with me reigning, why you should you should be into my kingdom. Um so these two things go hand in hand. But the day begins to wear and the twelve come to him, and you begin to see what this is Luke's version now of the feeding of the five thousand, because the, the so the disciples tell Jesus, "You got You're going to have to send these people away. Uh, we're not going to have any way uh, to feed them. Um, they need to find lodging. They need to find provisions. And this is a desolate place." And Jesus tells them, "You give them something to eat." And uh, as I've noted before in the other feeding of the five thousand stories, I do think that there is a heavy emphasis here um, on the role of the apostles and disciples. Um, I see this in the in the twelve baskets that are left over, and the fact that Jesus 
involves his disciples, right? Like he breaks the bread and there's as much as they need, as much as is needed comes from him, but it's mediated to the people through the apostles. Um, I think, um, you know, that, that jives well with the fact that just like um, a few verses earlier, you have the apostles being sent out, or disciples they are now, they will be the apostles, right? But they, you have the 12 being sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal, to do the same two things that Jesus is saying doing here, right? Like, in Jesus, Jesus is authorizing them, he's deputizing them to be his spokespersons, his people. And, um, and so indeed from the two, from the five loaves and two fish, as we've seen in the other gospels so far, and we'll see again in the gospel of John, um, they go and they feed 5,000 men and note that that doesn't include women and children. So it's much more than 5,000 likely. And, um, yeah. And so he feeds all of them and it says they all ate and were satisfied and you have the 12 baskets taken up. Um, then he goes and he's alone and it says he's praying alone and the disciples are with him and he asks them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answer essentially what Herod thought, right? Uh, is this John the Baptist raised from the dead? Uh, is this Elijah come just like we are expecting based on the end of the book of Malachi? Um, or is it that one, some other of the prophets of old had risen, right? That's essentially what, what, um, what, John, what Herod had speculated. That, and by uh, essentially, I mean exactly what he had speculated. And Jesus says, but no, who do you say that I am? And Peter, here you have the confession, right? Uh, you are the Christ of God, the Christ of God. And notice how much Luke abbreviates of this. The other Gospels tell us much more stuff, especially Matthew. Um, and then Jesus goes on from there, which again, the, the, the other Gospels do couple these things together, and and charges them to tell no one about this. So there you have the messianic secret again, and then goes on to predict his suffering, his rejection by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, his death, and his resurrection. And right on the heels of that, that this is where I am going, Jesus then tells them, this is also where you must go. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's interesting, daily, right? This walk with Jesus is a daily decision to take up our cross, to crucify the flesh with its desires, to be crucified with Christ. Um, and he says, "Forever, whoever would save his life for my sake, whoever will um, save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man, and this is something that we all must ponder, if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? And, um, and then you have this, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory, uh, his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I don't think this is so much like, you know, you turn down the Christian radio station when someone comes uh, when you go through a parking lot or something, no, I, it's, I mean, maybe it is that if, if you're legitimately doing that because you're ashamed of Jesus, um, there are other reasons why a faithful Christian might want to turn it down a little bit. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I, I mean, I think of like Peter who, who is like the, the exemplification of this when he denies Christ, right? 
there is redemption from this. It's not like there's like Jesus is is looking down, and if there's any time where we kind of flinch or something, he's he's looking to zap us. No, but this, but our whole lives should be lived in the direction of a bold proclamation of whose we are and what we are about. Um, that we shouldn't be into hiding the fact that we know the Lord. Um, that. We should get used to people and and okay with people knowing we are Christians. I know sometimes, um, though not not always because I I don't always need to and I do have my phone. But so, sometimes I straight up just bring my Bible when I have to meet someone for lunch or for coffee or something like that. And you know the thought has crossed my mind sometimes like, oh, what are people going to think of me seeing me walking in the door with a a book with a the ribbon sticking out of it? They know what that is. Um, and, um, you know, but nevertheless, you know, I'll, I'll go in just so people know, like, like there's someone here who knows the Lord, who, who loves the Lord. And there's people here going to talk about Jesus and, um, people should know about that. People should know that you are a believer in him. You should not be ashamed of that. I'm not saying put it out frivolously for no reason. I'm not saying put it out for pride to be thought well of by others or anything like that. Um, but you do have a light and you should let it shine and you should not be ashamed of that. Um, and for those who are ashamed of that and who live, um, kind of this two-faced life, it says the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. Um, and then he caps this off today's reading with, I tell you truly, there are some standing here today who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And um, again, this idea that the the kingdom of God is with us, it is is coming, and it is coming in your lifetimes. And indeed, that is exactly what happens as we read on. Um, But that we'll have to wait for another day, um, because we are done for today. So... Uh, Thank you very much for joining me. As always, it is a pleasure to walk through Scripture with you. I hope you're getting as much from listening to this as I am from speaking into a microphone (laughs) anticipating you listening to this. Uh, But until tomorrow, uh, keep reading Scripture. Take care.